it is an act of humility <laughs> going back and saying, actually, we really knew what we were doing 100 years ago. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast, the show where we imagine a future that doesn't make us wretch. Today on the show, we're going to take another look at how we can evolve one of those very basic requirements of human existence, shelter, and how we can rethink buildings into structures that can serve us and the planet versus harming our bodies, the environment, and society. And the guest who's going to guide us to imagining this future that's actually already happening is someone who's been active in the built environment for nearly 20 years, going all the way back to the early days of the Green Building LEED certification movement. But before we get there, I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I support startups in gaining media exposure through Leading Technica Communications, and I support all genders in their careers with women in clean tech and sustainability. If you've listened to a few of our episodes, I'll wager to guess you're enjoying the show. And if you are, I encourage you to become a supporting member. And the most valuable thing that you can do, and frankly, the easiest thing, is to go to your podcast app right now, scroll to our show, scroll all the way down to where there are the reviews, and leave us a few stars. Five stars would be amazing, and I encourage you to leave as many stars as you think we are worthy of. And now, a moment from Resource Labs. Earthlings, we have tackled the built environment in two episodes so far of our show. Uh, the first one was on the smart building home upgrade uh, and how people could use the IRA to in, in bring smart energy solutions into their home. And also we talked to Lindsay Wood, the tiny home lady, about this uh, movement of smaller spaces for living. And today we're talking to another Lindsay on how we can encourage the building and construction industry to create a regenerative built environment. Imagine if buildings did more than shelter us and make us sick. What if the materials and the way we used water and energy all contributed to health, happiness, beauty, and equity. And it's a not a far-fetched idea. It's actually happening right now with building owners and architects taking on the living building challenge. Before you get your inner skeptic scoffing at me, the sick building syndrome is actually a real thing. And it's been around since the 1980s. In fact, the World Health, Health Organization actually first coined the term. And, and if you think about it, it makes sense. We're in these buildings, they're clamped down, full of plastics, solvents, adhesives, a plethora of chemicals that can all contribute to this, this constellation of symptoms uh, that can result in like this subtle sickly feeling. And you don't even know that it's the environment around you that is contributing to that illness. I know somebody who suffered from flu-like symptoms for years uh, until he finally found out that it was mold that he was allergic to. And then, of course, you've got bad lighting, which contributes to headaches and eye strain, um, you know, buildings that are too cold, even in the summertime. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So to help us navigate this new future that's coming, we are joined by Lindsay Baker, 
She's the CEO of the International Living Future Institute and its chief strategist. The nonprofit has been advocating for living buildings for the past 40 years, and they do it through this Living Building Challenge along with other initiatives. Lindsay herself is a longtime climate movement leader, a successful startup entrepreneur, and a building scientist. She served on the board of directors for Measurable. She was WeWork's first global sustainability leader. She founded and led Building Robotics for five years to a successful exit, mind you. And she was a member of Google's green team focused on sustainable operations. I am really passionate about working in the built environment because it's a really delightful place to work on climate solutions with people who fundamentally care about how best to shelter other people. It's just a really great community. Um, So I've always felt like I belonged here and (laughs) felt like a great uh, industry and professional world to be in. Thank you, Lindsay. I mean, they say that, you know, shelter is one of our core needs as humans. So for you to spend your focus and time on on protecting us very vulnerable meat sacks that we have on this planet. <laughs> you know, we don't have claws, we don't have fur, like we're very, very vulnerable in terms of the elements. So the fact that you're focusing on this for us, I really appreciate because, um, you know, you and I go way back and it's, it's almost like the environment's not going to get any easier for the built environment in terms of climate change and, and whatnot. So thinking thinking about how all this works together is going to be critical for our near future. It's so true. And I just really believe like everything about working on how we make ourselves able to withstand, you know, increasing climate disasters. It turns out those things also really help to mitigate climate change. So it's just kind of a, it's a win-win. <laughs> oh, I like that. Well, that's what we're going to explore today. So uh, we did a show, Life at 3C, last season, and we covered sort of how life is going to dramatically change on this planet in terms of like heat waves and rising sea levels and all of this stuff. So how do you predict that the built environment and the building industry is adjusting to these uh, uh, upcoming uh, challenges? Yeah, well, I mean, we're seeing it this summer, right, all over the U.S., that folks who live in cooler climates are suddenly feeling these heat waves and their homes and schools and other kinds of spaces aren't always able to really respond right to how hot it gets to keep us cool inside um so it's feeling particularly relevant this summer to think about it um and to for you know i think we're experiencing in the building industry that there's sort of a higher level of awareness than there used to be amongst the sort of overall general public on the kind of work that we do, um, which is great, but also sad because we have so much work to do really um, and so little time. I think one of the ways the building industry is responding that's most critical is how we're going to renovate all of these buildings. It's actually a lot easier for us to figure out how to build buildings that can withstand extreme temperatures from scratch. Um, A lot of buildings that have been built more recently that are built to modern codes are pretty good on that front, you know, and a lot of folks like have installed air conditioning in many parts of of the world, even if the climate didn't necessarily need it because everybody loves an air conditioner. But uh, 
how we're going to do that while also tackling climate change. All of those things are actually really challenging when you look at not just, um, you know, resilience, keeping ourselves uh, comfortable and safe during climate disaster, but then also um, reducing the overall, you know, carbon emissions. Of course, for a lot of folks, the way, the way that we stay cool when it's really hot out is something that contributes overall to more global warming, right? Um, of uh, <laughs> putting more CO2 into the atmosphere. So the great part of it actually is that we knew how to build well before air conditioning and electric light and all of these things were invented that that really increased the amount of global carbon emissions we put out into the world. I mean, when you think about it that way, that we just really rapidly increased the amount of carbon emissions in the past 20 years that have gone into the atmosphere. And yet we have been sheltering ourselves for thousands of years. And so we know that it is possible to do this with low carbon emissions because we used to do it. Um, and a lot of the techniques and strategies and things we're trying to use nowadays, even when it comes to renovations, are going back to techniques that people have known about for a long time, you know, shading our, our the buildings, you know, shading windows and uh, using ceiling fans more <laughs> effectively or just air movement, you know. I lived in a Victorian house when I was um, just out of college in Michigan, and Michigan's very humid in the summer, like you sit and sweat, like it can be brutal. Um, but this Victorian house was built in such a way that if we opened up all the windows, it was cool. And it always, I was always felt very impressed that before air conditioning and all this stuff, architects, you know, in I think this is, is 1889 house that I lived in, right? Like, they, they understood it, right? And we know that you can Live under, like, if you have part of your house underground, it's going to stay cool, right? You know, my Michigan basement was always 62 degrees. It was always freezing down there, right? But these are things that we have known about for a long time. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes, I mean, we love believing this narrative that we've gotten so much more sophisticated over the past, you know, whatever amount of time our own lives have <laughs> been in. And I have to say, in the case of buildings, sometimes in the past hundred years, we got less sophisticated. We basically started realizing like, oh, wait a second, we can get, we can build these buildings that are completely dumb, but then it won't matter because we're going to, you know, pump them full of cold air that we've made from burning fossil fuels. And like, it's, we don't have to, you know, use that intelligence. So I think it's kind of, it is an act of humility <laughs> going back and saying, Actually, we really knew what we were doing 100 years ago. All that stuff really works. Um, but the good news is we still have it. And we had a lot of buildings that, you know, there are even public school buildings. I used to work a lot on public schools. And um, there were buildings that were built around that same time that your Victorian house was built. And um, they had natural ventilation techniques actually built into these, like, oftentimes brick school buildings. So they would have sort of, you know, vents and things designed into the actual structures and then in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they closed them off. They didn't know what they were for, and they were starting to, you know, get air conditioning in the schools or whatever. So sometimes the act of getting a building to be more resist resilient to climate change can actually be to just literally unbuild some of the structures that we created for ourselves during these times when we um, got really, you know, uh, excited about fossil fuels and all of the 
things we could do with our, you know, nearly free energy source. And what about some of the specific features or technologies that you see uh, being implemented today or you're tracking um, that are going to help us uh, manage, you know, the climate crisis challenge that's coming? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things. Actually, one of the things I get excited about these days um, is architecture firms and practices in the global south. In particular, there's one firm I'm a really big fan of called Mass Design Group that's doing really advanced work around like earth construction. So it's basically saying, okay, we're not building with mud anymore. We're building with super advanced rammed earth structures that are essentially turned into commercial buildings, like big buildings. I think there's a stereotype that if you're building a big, you know, professionally built building, you're going to build with concrete and steel and glass. And like, that's, that's how we build. But there, there are people all over the world now showing that you can build these very, you know, professional commercial office buildings or whatever it is out of materials that are local with local labor that have very low carbon footprints. And all of those sort of bio-based materials and practices that are really grounded in a, a local economy and what it needs to thrive are such a big part of climate resilience, right? Because it means fewer climate uh, refugees, frankly, if folks can have those jobs and they're staying in their communities and their buildings are built for their climate, it's just like a, a win on every front, right? Like it's all the things. It's not just a question of how do we reduce our carbon footprint. We, we can tackle all of these intersecting issues around climate through how we build, you know, creating jobs, creating ways for people to stay um, comfortable and in their communities, like the, the creation of community that happens when you build a building together, like all that stuff can build resilience in multiple sort of ways. So all of that. And I mean, it's, you know, it's earth and construction in some parts of the world. It's mass timber construction in other parts of the world. Um, just, you know, great renovation technologies. There's certainly, there are a lot more things. I'm a, I'm a fan of, there's companies like Gradient that are doing a wonderful job of getting heat pumps uh, for residential homes that are easier for people to put in and kind of, you know, make the switch to electric heat pumps and get rid of the natural gas uh, in their homes. So like lots of stuff that's coming out that just helps us do this. Um I don't know. The list goes on. There's not quite enough. Like, I live in a tall glass building, ironically. It's <laughs> not great at keeping the heat out. Um, and uh, we could really use better technologies for windows. What Window retrofits are one of the most expensive things um, out there when it comes to energy retrofits in buildings. And it's, still, it's not really getting cheaper. So, like, you know. If there are technology entrepreneurs out there listening, please help us create some new windows <laughs> or something something cheaper we can do with windows that lets us, you know, get in there and give people better insulation from the outdoors without spending like tens, hundreds, thousands of dollars doing it. But yeah, aside from that, we're doing okay. So... I hear a lot about different certifications that are out there for buildings and one that you all have um, that you're that you have this initiative called the Living Building Challenge. And you're inspiring these architects and builders to think more holistically about the structures they built. Can you tell us a bit more about what this challenge is and what does it entail? The Living Building Challenge has been around for about 15 years now. 
Uh, we just certified our 33rd building as a fully living building. So it's not, it's not meant to be easy. And it's also not really meant to be something for every building out there in the world. But basically, a li fully living building is a building that generates more energy on site than it consumes. It treats all of its own water on site um, such that it can be water positive. It is completely free of uh, chemicals that are known to be uh, toxic to humans in any way. And then there are a handful of other features about it around community, how it engages and creates um, economic opportunity for the community, how it welcomes the community in, um, landscape, uh, transit, access, all these kinds of things that really um, have been written in a way to define what it means for a building to truly give back more positive impact to the world um, than what it takes. And that is actually a really hard thing to do. I, remember, I mean, I was just noticing the other day, um, like a shoe company launched a shoe that's actually carbon positive. And it was like this big deal, like no one's ever made a shoe that was better for the world than um, than what it took out, you know, and like that term positive can carbon positive can be a little bit fuzzy. But what we basically do is try to define that not just on carbon, but on human health and on social impact. Um, and we challenge um, architects and engineers and owners to see if they can build a building that really does that in the world. Um, and we, we run the program really to inspire people and show what is possible, how we can build um, today. But I think a lot of us think that the idea that we could build a carbon positive building feels impossible or just feels like so far off, but it's entirely possible, you know? Um, or it's going to look like one of those earth ships in Taos, New Mexico, which is all made out of, <laughs> you know, waste products, which are awesome. And they recycle, I mean, they reuse all that water like five times before it actually irrigates the plants. And it's amazing what those earth ships can do. Yeah. But most people don't want to live in one of those or work in one of those. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the kinds of buildings that we have now, you know, that are actual living buildings are, you know, we have. We have office buildings that are six, seven, eight stories tall. We have, you know, um, laboratory facilities. We have like totally normal office buildings. Um, of course, they don't look totally normal because it turns out when you try to build without, you know, plastics, <laughs> you uh, you end up looking a little bit better than you otherwise would. But it's not really, um, you know, it's not, as you're saying, it's not earth ships. It's not like living in an igloo or something uh it's these you know beautiful buildings and and importantly part of the challenge is also about um then educating and bringing people into the space you have to hold an open house every year and yeah we just think it's a buildings are i feel so lucky it's not just that like people who work on buildings are really delightful it's also that buildings are this incredible visceral way for people to experience what the future could feel like. And um, when we work on these kinds of living buildings, I can, just can't even tell you the number of times people come up to me and say, I walked through a living building and it changed me completely from being someone that felt like we were beyond repair on climate change. How could we possibly tackle this thing? To understanding, oh, it's possible. This is what it will feel like. 
this is reasonable. Let's get down to it, you know, and like deal with whatever climate solutions we have available to us in our industry or in our community or whatever. I love that you bring that up because um, uh, my fiance was an architecture student and he talked about how architecture was meant to create communication. And that's what he took from his, you know, his his studies of, of the field, that he wanted to create these spaces that would bring people together and help them better communicate and interact with each other. And I think we take a lot for granted in terms of how buildings are built and how much thought goes in to the, the design of these buildings and the literal sweat, blood and tears that it takes to, to put up some of this infrastructure. Um, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear, do you have an example of, of one of your certified buildings uh, that you could tell us about so we could get a more of a, a picture of how these operate? I'll share one of my favorites. It's hard to pick. I think a lot of people like to talk about, there's a building called the Bullet Center in Seattle, Washington. So if you're like a Northwest person, go look into that one. But I'm going to tell you about um, the Candida building in Atlanta, Georgia. It's on the Georgia Tech campus. Um, and I'm from Atlanta. And so I'm really partial to it because as we were just talking about, like I grew up with a healthy addiction to air conditioning and the idea of building in Atlanta in a really hot, humid climate and still being able to build in a, where you use all of these kind of different technologies than you would normally use in a building to keep it cool it makes a lot of people nervous. Um, and so the Candida building has done an incredible job. It's a it's a classroom building. So, you know, it's I think it's maybe, I don't know, three or four stories tall. And it's on in the middle of Georgia Tech's campus. It's been around for a couple of years. But uh, they have um, they have like an edible landscape on the roof. Um, they have, you know, blueberries and little farm kind of up there with people uh, um, cultivating bees. Uh, there's beekeepers and all of that on the site. Um, the solar panels for these buildings oftentimes extend beyond the roof line so that you can get enough solar. So they kind of create this canopy. There's actually a really nice shade for walking around the building in the summertime because you it keeps the sun off of you while also harvesting the sun's energy to to fuel you know to to um, energize the building. Um, but yeah, they have you know super cool like foamy toilets that use very very little water, so that you can. It's like a foam that pulls all the stuff from the toilet down into the into a composting toilet system. There's all these kinds of things. It's it's um, but again, it's not you know these are not normal composting toilets. These are lovely ones <laughs> that are fun. <laughs> well, actually, I know people who have composting toilets and they love them. Yeah, nothing wrong with it, you know. <laughs> and I've never heard of a I've never heard of a, um, a a building using composting toilets. I've always heard of like tiny houses or mobile camping cabin sort of off grid experiences using them. Yeah, no, you can use them. I mean, it, it it's, you know, it requires somebody who's going to kind of pay attention to things. Um, and um, they run a little bit differently than other toilets do. But again, it's kind of about breaking down like, well, I mean, just because we've used this particular type of vacuum style water based toilet for the past 100 years, doesn't mean we're not capable of better things or different design. So, you know, it's all about kind of being at that vanguard edge and trying new things and 
um, and then sharing with the industry what's working and what we think everybody can use and just sort of continuing along that, that, you know, innovative edge, I guess. I like that. I like that you're, you're sharing how every building sort of learns from the ones before it when you're trying to do something different than the status quo. I appreciate that you mentioned the concept of plastics and petrochemicals in buildings, because I think a lot of people don't really realize how subtle um, uh, those can impact the human body in a negative way. What's been your experience? Oh, my goodness. So many things. Well, the first thing I'll say is we have a program that folks should check out on our website um, that's called The Red List. And it's our program that helps to screen uh, building materials for a set of uh, chemicals that are known to be harmful for human health, especially carcinogenic uh, materials. There's a lot of plastics. Um, We've been particularly active around PFAS chemicals, which have been in the news a lot recently, there is a ton of PFAS in building materials. And I think somehow people don't always make the connection, but you think about um, like a lot of flooring, for example, it looks like wood, but it's actually vinyl. And so that vinyl oftentimes, you know, has, it, it is PVC, polyvinyl chloride. It's the same stuff that was in the train that crashed in East Palestine, Ohio, and destroyed an ecosystem and communities and all sorts of things and has produced millions upon millions of dollars of damage. So that's that stuff. That's the same material. So when we talk about trying to get those materials out of buildings, as you can probably guess, it's not just a climate thing. It's also a human health thing. I think a lot about how we're building our buildings. And I think people know or people are pretty familiar with the what, what the green building certification and and maybe slightly fewer people know about passive uh, house design. How does the living building challenge fit in with those other types of certifications and how should we think about all of them together? So LEED, for example, was sort of first, you know, green building certification. I worked on that. I was there 20 years ago. And the idea then, um, and this is still sort of how LEED works, is it gives you a menu of options and you pick a bunch of them. And if you pick enough of them, you get certified and then you can pick more of them and you get silver and platinum and all of that. And it was really just meant to sort of say to people, these are all the things you can and should be thinking about. Get after it. See what you can do. And we'll give you recognition at the end once you've documented that you've done all those things. Um, so it was across the board, health, in- energy, um, all, all sorts of things, you know, water, all that. Um, but it was more of like a pick and choose. So the living building challenge basically says, if you want to get this designation, you have to do all the things that we think require a building to really become positive. And, and we also run a program called our zero carbon certification program which is really about defining buildings that have gotten to just that carbon level. And it's very popular with companies that have made carbon commitments around the reduction of their overall carbon footprint for, for the company, because they're basically looking to document progress towards a climate goal. And then on the passive house side, I guess I'll just point out, it's just about um, energy on that is operational energy it's just about how to really reduce 
the amount of energy that you consume in the building by making it super tight. The envelope is tight, so you're not going to lose a lot of heat or a lot of cool, you know, through the envelope itself. So, so that's what it's good at. So it's a much more specific program. And there are lots of other specific programs, like there's a program called Well that just focuses on the health impacts of buildings. Um, FitWell is another one of those. It's just about health. So, yeah, we're kind of embarrassing in the number of certifications we have in the building industry for different things. <laughs> yeah, it is a little little fragmented, but I think it, it makes sense that certain things can be used for certain goals, right? And I guess that the the uh, onus is on the architect, the builder, and the ultimately the end user or building owner to sort of decide, okay, how, what, how do we want to go about this building in the most responsible way for us and our goals and what we care about? Yeah. And then, yeah, that's where I guess I'll just say what we mostly do is work with people who want to build buildings that can be beacons for change in their community. So they're really, really trying to do something um, that exemplifies climate action, you know, or what it truly means to be a non-toxic building. Can you imagine if every real, a commercial real estate agent was presented with the question, excuse me, is this a toxic building or a non-toxic building? Because I only want to be looking at non-toxic properties. <laughs> right? Yeah. I know. And the sad thing is, if you asked a real estate agent that today, they would probably be like, oh, so what do you mean? Let's get completely non-toxic. And then you, you'd be like, but this is vinyl and this is vinyl. And this is like, you know, but just, it's not, it's not known, but we need to work on that. We're going to work on that. <laughs> we are. And we are. And the industry is, it's it's moving along, probably not as fast as maybe some of us would like, but it, you know, takes a lot of time and effort to build these buildings. There's permitting, there's, there's you know, planning. Um, what do you think we can do to reduce this lag time? Oh, gosh, it's, there's so many things. I mean, in one way, I think it's just, you know, it's good to recognize the building industry, there are lots of good reasons why we've built up all of these sort of regulations. And it's, you know, it's for worker safety. It's for environmental safety. There's all sorts of stuff, right? Um, liability, something that America is great at, you know, like adding levels of bureaucracy around. I mean, I get really excited about uh, modular and prefab construction techniques, things that sort of reduce the amount of on-site. Uh, fabrication that's happening because I think those kinds of technology companies and um, sort of processes that people are creating are really helping to cut down the amount of time because you know part of why we're so regulated of why it takes so long is that every building is its own special snowflake so if fewer buildings were actually special snowflakes and they were more you know um, yeah more more similar more uh, modularized, et cetera, then uniform, then yeah, then you'd, you'd be able to produce them more quickly and that would be helpful. Um, I think there's also just a, it's interesting. Sometimes it's easier to build, uh, these kinds of buildings in the global South in parts of the world that haven't built up the same amount of regulation that we have. Um, and, I'm starting to realize as I've been, I've been talking to folks like, why is that, that you can kind of build a super, super regenerative building in Rwanda that works great and 
all of these things um, with materials fr from on site, all of, you know, there's a lot um, and you can't do that here. And, and I think it also just comes down to how uh, building regulations have actually been really um, actively influenced by manufacturing companies who wanted to see their products used. And so the more we can try to, uh, shift the way that our regulations around buildings are made and allow them to more specifically have the goals of climate action, the better. You know, there's a lot of folks who are getting on these committees to make sure that the codes and regulations have those goals and don't have competing goals around other people's desire to make sure that you can still put your natural gas appliances in the building if you want to, or you can still put all of your really, really great vinyl products in the building if you want to, right? It's, it's just, you know, capitalism is a factor, I guess, is maybe one way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, we should try and reduce the amount of regulatory capture that happens in our country. <laughs> I'm shocked. shocked. Shocking. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so it sounds like because I understand, as I understand it, um, building codes, like one, there's a, the attitude of, oh, well, I'm only going to do what's in the building code. It's not in the building code or I'm just that's my, you know, I think they're supposed to be seen as like the bare minimum. But I think people see them as the be all end all and they're not doing anything beyond that. And then and then it takes however many years. I feel I was talking to somebody at a networking event or something and he was saying, you know, you know, we're working on the solidifying the building codes, you know, for three years from now or something like that. So many years, right? Because like, yeah, if you get a building, if you start working on an update for a building code right now, then it's going to take however many three years, four years to actually get it enacted. And then here in the U.S. also, like in Canada, there's one building code for the whole country. Here in the U.S., um, there's a model code for the whole country. And then cities and states decide if they want to adopt it or not. And so a lot of cities are stuck on a model building code that was written for for the U.S. 10, 15, 20 years ago. And since there's been more progress on energy requirements and air, you know, and health and all these things, um, they haven't adopted them. And sometimes that is political. You know, it's like people see that and say, oh, this is climate stuff and we don't want it in our building codes. And so they don't adopt it. It can also be cost things, you know, a lot of times. Um, efficiency measures or other things are they can add some cost compared to to not doing them but again that goes back to this resilience point it's you know cost in the short term to build the building better is usually um, a savings in the long run because it operates cheaper so kind of you really got to ask yourself who who is it more expensive for it right well that comes back to the the end user or the end building owner dictating some of that right because they're the ones that are going to be enjoying those cost savings but it's not always the developer that gets to have gets to enjoy those savings this actually makes the project more expensive for them so they don't have an incentive to do it it's wild um like even i think i don't want to get this wrong but i'm pretty sure it was it's just been in the past couple of years that there's actually been a new um standard passed for the construction of, of manufactured homes in the US. And I think either there hadn't been one or there hadn't been any changes to it in like 30 years. And so people, so the manufacturers of manufactured homes, which are, you know, a lot of folks, I'm so I'm talking like 
you might think of them as trailers or you might think of them as uh, you know variety of different kinds of homes like that double wides yep yeah a lot of people live in those homes in america and so yeah it's important for us to ask the question especially when you see that those folks are disproportionately um have their homes and and communities ruined in climate disasters so like who's regulating that the answer has kind of been nobody recently but we're finally <laughs> pushing on that to make sure that those homes can are, are built up to higher standards around um you know what our weather and uh, landscape looks like and what we want to achieve from a climate perspective and also from an enjoyment perspective, I have had some experience with uh, mobile homes and double wides in my youth. And I remember being in those buildings thinking, wow, this really wasn't built very well. Wow, this doesn't really make me feel good as a human, right? And we think about the housing crisis and how there's just not enough homes for everybody. Naturally, you think, well, let's let's have smaller homes. Let's have, you know, tiny home communities. And then people are like, no, I don't want you know, crappy mobile mobile park in my neighborhood. And people are trying to say, no, these homes are better made. They're made more structurally sound. They're, they're more energy efficient. They're actually better homes. They're just smaller. Yeah, exactly. Like, I totally love people who have decided to live in a mobile home because they like the community. <laughs> you know? yes. Like a lot of folks are tired or whatever. Uh, that... Um, it's a beautiful thing. And the only the only part about it that's hard for us here is the, is the stereotypes that we apply to those kinds of uh, ways of living, you know, that type of space. Uh, but as you said, also just the standards to which they're built, right? I mean, we build it with a bunch of stuff that's going to harm our health or if they're not built with good ventilation or light or any of those things, that's not okay. Um, but yeah, we have, as a community and as a as a um, political body have the choice to make those standards higher so everybody has a good quality of life, you know. Everybody deserves a living situation that helps them to feel valued as a human being. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even if that's a subtle experience, like most people aren't even aware that they may be feeling the opposite living in whatever situation they're in. But it's a, it has a subtle yet profound effect on, on, on your perspective on life and how you go about this game of life. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes it's very visceral. You know, there's all this wonderful research that's been done in the past couple of decades around the importance of natural light on our mental health, um, but also on our physical health. You know, like they, they've looked at... You mean getting outside and being in the sun is actually good for you? Weird. <laughs> Science shows. That it is actually really good for you. Um, yeah, it makes you heal faster after surgeries if you have like a view to nature out of your window versus no window or like a view to not nature. It's a real thing. Oh, absolutely. It's a real thing. I I had a friend who, and they could, and it could help you just emotionally too. I had a friend tell me once, he's kind of like an urban shaman. And he was like, when you're ever upset or frustrated, just go outside, go hang out with the plants, the trees. You know, go go rub your let your let your hand rub against the bushes, right? Because because nature, it's designed to pull negativity off of you. Exactly. Energetically, that's what it's there for. Oh, I love that. I love that way of putting it. <laughs> that's really powerful. 
So listeners out there, if you don't have a plant in your house, you get a chance to go adopt one. Become a plant parent. (laughs) It's very fulfilling. I can testify that with my two plant babies on either side. They keep me company. And uh, yeah, I mean, even just like, I just like the way that, you know, when the wind's blowing on the sky, it kind of moves around and makes me happy. Yeah. So um, we're coming up on time and I want to be conscious of that. I do want to ask you, though, what do you think we can expect from your professional experience? Because you've been in the building industry for a long time. Uh, you 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 have quite a perspective, and I'm I'm curious to know what can we expect from the buildings that we live and work and play in in the next like twenty thirty years. What's your prediction? Well, I love that question. I mean, because I could answer that two ways, but one of the ways I want to answer it is saying that we should all expect that our homes and buildings and schools, all of these things, don't make us sick. Like, that's a really good fundamental one to start with. I think we don't always tune into that question, right? Like, when we have wildfire smoke and it's impacting our community, you should be able to be in a home that keeps you safe from that smoke. That's a reasonable expectation, you know? And a lot of people don't have that, and I think somehow it doesn't occur to them, I should ask more, I should demand more of my building because it should be able to take care of this for me. Um, and you know, many buildings do and many buildings don't. So all of us, I think should expect that. (laughs) Um, but yeah, you know, I'm excited. I actually think some of the things that we should expect to see in the way that we build change is that we're going to build with more bio-based materials. Um, a friend of mine, God, I really, so his name is David Arkin. He's a great architect, wonderful guy. We were on a zoom call yesterday and he said, You know, maybe we need a new motto that's kind of like Michael Pollan's advice for food, which I don't know if you've heard, but he, Michael Pollan says, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That's his like mantra about like, he's like, that's the only diet I've ever really thought was worth anything. Um, And David said, what if it was build shelter, not too big, mostly plants? (laughs) I was like, well, there you go. That is just about all we need to tell people here. You know, just build shelter, not too big, mostly plants. We have like so many of the materials that we're capable of building with are low carbon footprint materials today. And yes, it's going to be great for us to try to develop new technologies to lower the carbon footprint of things like cement and steel and concrete, all of that. But um, today we can build that way with natural materials um, that are all, that are going to ultimately have just a much lower carbon footprint, and we and 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 also they feel great, right? Like wood in a space. I don't know if folks haven't gone into a building that was built with mass timber. Just just walk through it and just feel the feeling, like you were talking about having plants in your building. Imagine or in your space in your home. Imagine that just everything around you feels like a material that comes from nature it's you know it's earth it's wood it's stone all of these things they feel great and they are better for us so i look forward to that i think we're gonna start to realize that we kind of went down a road we didn't need to go down with all these plastics and petrochemicals and carbon emitting things but i think the more that we all sort of ask ourselves those fundamental questions about what we buy 
and um, set our sights out for buildings that feel like that and look like that, the easier it will be for us to structure all of the necessary financing mechanisms and other things that are definitely behind, you know, under the hood on making that transformation happen. Wow. Earthlings. Mike, drop. What boggles my mind is how much of the 21st century is focused on unraveling the assumptions of past generations and their technology solutions. We're seeing that with fossil fuel usage and automobiles, energy, medicine, plastics, um, housing, education, psychology, and now large buildings. Kudos to Lindsay and her living building challenge. We're looking forward to seeing more of these buildings in the future. Speaking of bringing things back to the way they once were, our faith in humanity is restored this week through the efforts of Sebastio and Lilia Salgado. They are a Brazilian couple that brought back a barren wasteland devoid of wildlife to a thriving forest. Their project is called Instituto Terra, and it spanned 20 years and reforested 555 acres or more by now, and has employed over 70 people. They started with 200 species of plants and narrowed things down to about 100 that really worked well, and they pot on average 18,000 plants a day. Today, they have a thriving forest full of wildlife, and they have converted unimaginable tons of carbon dioxide into oxygen. We salute Sebastio and Lilia and all the people of Instituto Terra. Thank you for your efforts. This story is a powerful reminder of the potential of human determination and dedication to heal our world. I hope you will ponder how you can do the same for this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home. 